You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll hear about improving the lives of homeless people. I've been naughty in lots of ways. I've had arguments with doctors. I've sworn at doctors. I've told doctors to pee off. You know, I've been depressed. I've been agitated, irritated. But, you know, the doctors and nurses have been good. You know what I mean? Because one day, you know, I'm all right, and the next day I can be quite moody and quite aggressive. But first, a head-to-head in the BMJ this week asks, does celebrity involvement in public health campaigns deliver long-term benefit? The British Heart Foundation's hands-free CPR campaign, featuring Hollywood actor Vinnie Jones, has had an incredible impact. And I went to their offices in London to speak to Mara Gillespie, Head of Policy and Advocacy there, to ask why. My name is Vinnie Jones and I'm going to teach you a lesson you'll never forget. Why did you want to go so big on um, hands only? Um, The British Heart Foundation uh, would like to see more people stepping in if if somebody has a cardiac arrest. So currently uh, 60,000 people have out-of-hospital cardiac arrests and the survival rate of that is only um, 10%, which we thought was really low. And so we started to look at some of the barriers about why people weren't getting involved in doing um, effective CPR Um, and one of the barriers is around uh, that they couldn't remember the ratio of how many breaths to how many pushes or um, they felt uncomfortable about doing the rescue breaths in in a situation where it wasn't a family member. First thing you do is you check him over. If he ain't responsive or he ain't breathing or he's making noises like this then his heart will stop working, he's having a cardiac arrest. Look lively. First call 999, then you do hands-only CPR and no kissing. You only kiss your missus on the lips. Following the guideline changes by the Resuscitation Council, which um, happened in 2010, where they said that if you were talking to a mass audience who would never go to training, then the best thing is to tell them about hands-only CPR. So that's what the advert was designed to do, is to reach a mass audience who will never go to training and who don't have the skills to do the rescue breaths. You've got other campaigns out there, Uh, there's one on your website at the moment about heart failure that use testimonials from patients and families about it but for this one you decided to go sort of celebrity led, why was that? The thing about this advert um, it's giving an instruction to people, it's motivating to people to do a skill which they might not need this year, might not need next year, it might be five years down the line so there's got to be something in that advert that sticks in their brain And the the key messages we wanted to stick were that you had to push hard and fast in the centre of the chest. Music was there, that's a given, and and hopefully that'll stick with people. But the pushing hard and fast, we needed some creative that was actually absolutely going to demonstrate that that's a core part of it, that you have to push hard. So we thought we would use a hard man character to get that across. Mm -hmm. And uh, who better than a, a hard man, Vinnie Jones? There are times in life when being tough comes in handy. Say some geezer collapses in front of you. What do you do? We need a volunteer that ain't breathing. Here's one I made earlier. It was really the creative led the the 
recruitment of Vinnie Jones in this, this situation. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the other sort of reason for using a, um, a hard man celebrity is the fact that it makes people look at that, watch the advert um, and that they think, oh, you know, what's he doing in that situation? And they watch and they listen. So it's more memorable than if we'd have had an unknown actor in that role. Now, if we talk about the sort of effect that this campaign has had, um, the reach was incredible when it first came out. It was it was everywhere. Yeah, the um, the advert launch, but uh, the day, day prior to that, we actually did the media launch, and it was phenomenal. We were on the, all the breakfast sofas that morning. Um, we started to get interviews um, across the UK. Every major news channel carried it. It was on the BBC's um, online videos. They put the whole of the advert on their online site. Um, so it was great. And then we started to get uh, international coverage. I think the uh, our media team came, came to me sort of halfway through the day and said it's gone supernova when we started getting calls from New Zealand. It was on the 6 o'clock news in New Zealand. And I think... Uh, the, the fact that we'd use Vinnie Jones was part of that. The way it went around the globe, you know, uh, on the New Zealand news, they were saying, hard man, Vinnie Jones, Hollywood actor, appears in new ads. So I think he, his usage um, in the advert captured people's imagination. Watch. Lock your fingers together, knuckles up, then push down right on the sovereign. Vinnie did a 40-second advert for us where we absolutely got across the key messages of how to keep someone alive and um, empowered people to go away and do that. We also did a slightly longer um, online video with Vinnie, still in the same character, still acting it all out, but could touch on some of the other points that worry people about doing CPR. So will I break a rib? Push down five or six centimetres. That's about two inches in old money. Push hard and fast about two times a second. Like to the beat of staying alive. Worried you'll hurt him? Better a cracked rib than him kicking the bucket. Keep this up till the ambulance arrives. And in the first week, we had over a million views of that training video online, and we're now up to 2.2 million people have viewed that training video. So it's been the most um, successful online campaign um, that we've ever had. I understand you now have phase two of the... Um the campaign about to, to launch next month? Yeah, um, so in November we're going to rerun the advert again with a slight twist on the end. Um, and the reasoning why we're going to run it again is because it has been so successful. We know that it works because we've had um, over 28 people call us up to say thanks to the advert. They'd had no training beforehand, but when it came to a real-life emergency situation, they remembered what it said, got on and did it and saved a life, which is absolutely fantastic for us. Um, we have, it is, we've had case studies that have appeared on um, BBC's Real Rescues, um, where a gentleman was collapsed on a golf course of a cardiac arrest and they play the 999 recording. He stopped breathing. And you said he stopped breathing now. Okay, yeah. sir. How old is he? Are you with him just now? I'm what age is he? 40? 42? 42. He stopped breathing And you said he stopped breathing. Get him flat over on his back and we'll tell you what yeah, to I'm do. Doing it. I'm doing the sign alive bit. So it is stuck in their memory. They'd got on, they were doing it and they saved their... Uh, friend's life. So we know that people have recalled the main messages, are using it, and then so the second phase is to go out to really embed that in people's memory. And as I say, you might not need it this year, might not need it next year, but something has to be locked away in your in your brain, a memory trigger of what to do in a, an emergency situation involving a cardiac arrest. It works. 
Hands-only CPR. It ain't as hard as it looks. And that head-to-head is online on bmj.com and in print this week. Now, care for the homeless is often fragmented and transient. A team at University College Hospital in London have brought together all the disparate agencies involved to ensure long-term medical and social care for these vulnerable people. Harriet Vickers reports. A homeless man was taken into our hospital here, to our A&E. He was 45 and he was the father of three daughters, as am I. And his business had gone into liquidation and he'd become divorced and his whole life just collapsed about him. And he was taken in from the cells, the police cells here, quite sick. And when he came into the hospital, he was seen in our A&E, washed down, cleaned up and released back to the streets where he went around the corner and had a subarachnoid hemorrhage and died. No one's fault. But it was all a bit tragic and the um, chief executive here asked if I'd take a closer look at it. And I did. And um, there was no technical or professional inadequacy. But there was an attitude that I was surprised by. Nurses and doctors were quite hard on this man. They seemed to think it was entirely his fault that he should. He ended up the way he did. There was a huge gap here that seemed to be invisible to a caring system like the NHS, which was designed specifically to make sure that the voiceless had representation and the same care as the most able and wealthy people in the country. That's Aidan Halligan, who's Director of Education at University College London Hospitals, on the patient that sparked the London Pathway. This is a service to improve hospital care of rough sleepers, hostel dwellers, or even those sleeping on friends' floors. The solution they came up with was a team, consisting of a nurse, a part-time GP and also care navigators. These are people who've had experience of homelessness. Much like a pain control team, they worked with the individual patients at the bedside and also with all the other organisations that have a hand in their care, such as liaison psychiatrists, housing associations or street outreach workers. Then we can trigger off some psyche care, can't we? While she's here, it's an opportunity, yes, isn't it? It's definitely an opportunity, but... I mean, we have counsellors, but whether she would... I mean, it's trying to get her stable enough to... If she to get an idea of the problems between hospital staff and homeless patients, Aidan sent into UCH Nigel Hewitt, a GP who's worked with homeless people since 1990. Here's what he found. Essentially, when, when a homeless person comes into hospital, they come in expecting conflict... They often will have been in hospital before, they often will feel that they've been badly treated, that they've not been understood, so there's been a row at some stage, uh, often they'll have they've taken their own discharge, that they come in expecting conflict. Uh, and the staff also expect conflict. They're worried about violence, they're concerned about drugs and alcohol, they're uh, worried about behaviour, they're worried about taking the lid off a can of worms that they can't get back on again and revealing uh, overwhelming need across a wide range of areas that they're just not equipped to deal with. Having lived on the street for 16 years, Wayne Hunt was admitted to the hospital and required surgery on an obstructed bowel caused by Crohn's disease. Whilst there, the team have been able to help him rebuild his life. I was only out a day from St Thomas's and the next day I was in here and I was in a poor way. I was very ill. I was 16 stone and I got right down to 
six, and now I'm seven stone, so I'm gradually going up. You know, and that's been going on now for uh, five or six months. And I'm alive now. I mean, I nearly died. I had a week to live. I've been naughty in lots of ways. I've had arguments with doctors. I've sworn at doctors. I've told doctors to pee off. You know, I've been depressed. I've been agitated, irritated. But, you know, the doctors and nurses have been good. You know what I mean? Because one day, you know, I'm all right, and the next day I can be quite moody and quite aggressive. The homeless team, they've done all the running around. When I wanted a birth certificate, one of the homeless team went specifically to get me my birth I mean, without a birth certificate, I'm not going to get any benefit. Now, I've not had benefit for years. When I wanted TV to help, you know, to entertain myself, I had no clothes, so all my clothes were brought by the, the, the homeless team, the shoes that I'm wearing, so all the practical things, and also befriending me, because they know more about me and the doctors and nurses, they know about my family, they know, you know, what's been going on on the out, and I've shared a lot of my mind, not because I've got mental issues, it's just the fact that I've gone through a lot of trauma, which most probably have affected me. So, yeah, they've been very good to me. Here's senior care navigator Josie Mavromatis on the day-to-day practicalities of working on the team. My duties really are wide and varied, um, from seeing the patients and talking to them on the wards, to getting them TV cards, making sure they're comfortable, having a chat... We build up a relationship of trust and because a lot of their circumstances could be similar to what mine was, being homeless and on the streets and um, with an alcohol and drug problem. So I think when I disclose that and they see that I'm from similar, because a lot of them say, no, you're, you know, and I say, well, yes, I was, you know, I was in the same boat. I find they engage more with me. The first priority is always their benefits and housing. So, I mean, 95% of them haven't bothered claiming benefit just for whatever reason, because they're on the streets or don't have access. And if they have no fixed abode, the benefits can, the letters and things, can actually come care of the hospital here. And I've helped before as well if people, like we had a patient who's come back and um, I got into rent arrears. So um, he was a patient of ours for a few months. So um, we've phoned the um, companies and the telephone company and the water things for him to just make sure he's not cut off and give him that extra time because he didn't have it was again it was an 0845 number Um, and also my role as care navigator has expanded where I go out into the community and um, still see them not for that long afterwards but still keep contact to check that everything's going well with them. It sounded like it was a somewhat fractious it was, meeting. yes. The, the housing manager wasn't particularly... Uh, this is from City of London. City of yes, London. Yes. yes, he was determined that, that Camden will have responsibility of him. Was he aware of the request for step-down care? No, I've just mentioned that because of public funds. Um, if this chap's condition further deteriorated and it was end-of-life care that yes. was for him... Um, is, have you come across problems in the past with, with getting somebody into, let's say, you know, the Marie Curie hospice? You would be able to go to a hospice. So improving this interaction, and therefore care, seemed important. But Aidan also sensed an economic argument. So I got a friend of mine, uh, Professor Barry McCormack, and I asked him if he'd do a scoping exercise. He found that they cost us eight times as much as the non-homeless. So immediately that rang a whole series of bells for everyone. I had worked in the Department of Health 
for a while and seen how it worked at national level and understood that fundamentally no humanitarian, no moral or no spiritual argument will shift a system unless it's wedded to an economic framework. The point of this wasn't to save money. The point of this was to improve the quality of care. But depending how you cut it, this service is saving the NHS system between two hundred and eight hundred thousand pounds a year. Which, even when you take into account the cost of a nurse and four sessions of a GP's time, uh, is a cost-effective intervention. Obviously, we're not very comfortable at having somebody back that we don't even know if they're self-discharged, if there was any follow-up needed regards district nurses or anything like that yeah. and she needs to come back to the hostel and stay and engage because she will be evicted. There's plenty that doctors can do to improve the lives of homeless people but what are the bounds of their responsibility should they be trying to get these people housed? Some final thoughts from Aidan. Uh, you wouldn't ask an electrician to do a plumber's job would you? You get a bad outcome. What's really important is to uh, uh, understand the concept of team. So Doctors are a very important part of that team, but what I've recognized and what we represent and what we do is that there need to be other people on that team. Public health, for instance, is going to be delivered through local government. That's going to be a big challenge for the medical profession. But what, what's the challenge? The challenge is just working with people in a team. And again, that article is available online and in print this week. Before we go, just time to plug our new video on bmj.com. The Harms of Overtreatment, with investigative journalist Jeannie Lenza. I began to worry about overtreatment in this country in something of a flash. It was looking at two graphs, very simple graphs. One was the increase in life expectancy over time, over the 20th century. And the other one was the increase in per capita spending in the last half of the 20th century. And one of them was going up very, very steeply, and the other one was not budging. It's now available on the BMJ's multimedia page and on our YouTube site. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be hearing from the RCGP conference in Glasgow. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.